Hi there, and welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversations with creative, passionate people with a lot of interesting things to share. Today, my guest is Jack Beatty. As a writer and senior editor with The Atlantic Magazine, a news analyst with On Point on National Public Radio, and the author of several books, including A Race Too Far and The Rascal King, The Life and Times of James Michael Curley. Today, I want to focus with Jack on a play he's written called The Battle Not Begun. Munich, 1938, involving a series of meetings between Adolf Hitler and Neville Chamberlain of the UK. Meetings that led to the airport announcement by Chamberlain that there was finally peace in our time, one year before the eruption of World War II. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. And by the way, this production will be available online for a limited time through the Gloucester Stage Theatre Company, and we'll tell you more about that at the conclusion of our interview. The first question for Jack is, what prompted him to take this project on? What fascinated him enough to write a play about it? Let's find out the answer as we go on mic with Jack Beatty. I, you know, I've been interested in it really since uh, I was a young man and uh, protesting the Vietnam War because again and again in Vietnam, uh, the justification uh, used was if we don't stop dictators here, we don't stop Ho in uh, Vietnam, he'll be in San Francisco. I think LBJ said something like that. And the whole domino theory writ large, not necessarily as ge- a geographical proposition, but as, you know, if you don't stop them, the whole subsequent problems problems will arise down the road. All of that went back to Munich. In fact, LBJ say, I'm no, said at one point, I'm no umbrella man. I'm not going to surrender to these people. And then, so the idea was you have to fight preventive wars. To, to get to fight a war to a preventive war to stop a future war, which would be even worse. And that logic is used again and again in American foreign policy. It was in the first Gulf War. It was all over the second uh, Iraq War. It, and it's cited as a article of faith, an unquestioned axiom. Got to stop the dictators, got to stop the bad guys before they go on to do worse things. So I felt that in significant respects, American foreign policy, and therefore the lives of thousands of American young men and women, were wasted or, and also put at risk by a metaphor from the past. And I wanted to, I think it's a pernicious metaphor, and I wanted to, uh, to investigate it. I say it's pernicious because the idea of a preventive war, I mean, I think uh, Bismarck said, preventive war is like a man committing suicide from fear of death. Uh, that's what happens. And uh, I, so I was, I was interested in the first Munich conference. And that, 
So it was my interest in uh, the way this metaphor has haunted American foreign policy that drove me back to look at the original conference. When looking at the original events in the late 30s, obviously history bears this out, that Hitler reneged and took the Sudetenland, and then a year later, less than a year later, attacks Poland. That's true. That happened. But what was Chamberlain trying to do? And again, I read up a little bit on Chamberlain in preparing for our chat today. He wasn't that totally naive, was he? No, not that totally naive. I think he was trying to avoid the absurdity of a war, as he puts it, to stop Germans returning to Germany. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the Sudeten Germans were numerically preponderant in the Sudeten land. And they had only been, that only area had only been ceded to the new state of Czechoslovakia at Versailles. Uh, and in effect, Chamberlain, as most Englishmen, felt that Hitler's demand there was justifiable. So why would you have a war about this? Then the other thing, if you wanted to have a war, how could you persuade your countrymen? Uh, Poles were primitive then, but they didn't show any support beyond, you know, marginal support, 10, 15, 20 percent, for a war for Czechoslovakia. Mm. Particularly back then uh, with World War I looming so close, and it was the same here in this country, wasn't it, in terms of uh, it, interest in yeah. war? And, uh, you know, and he wasn't, he wasn't naive about that. In fact, the year that they gained, between 29, uh, 38 and 39, British, Britain went from having radar sort of thinly around the edges to having radar from the Orkneys right all the way to the, you know, to the Shetlands. I mean, they essentially got that all in before the war, and they went from, I think it was six squadrons of Spitfires to 26. And, of course, the Spitfires won the Battle of Britain in 1940. So the time wasn't wasted. Now, did Chamberlain make this deal with Hitler to buy time? Sometimes he talked that way. Other times he talked as if he had succumbed to some kind of grandiose illusion, as if he had brought peace to Germany, as if he, uh, you know, had delivered the world from this terrible threat rather than sort of delaying it. And he, and he vastly overestimated his moral influence over Hitler, his letters to his sisters, uh, full of this, you know, well, this man, you know, he's never been exposed to a man of my moral character. And it's been my experience that if you show a common man what a real gentleman is like, that, uh, you know, virtue will be emulated. I mean, that was the general feeling that he had. So he was of two minds. One was canny realism can't have a war to stop Germans returning to Germany, got to rebuild. And the other was messianic mission. I gave peace, and to prove it, I've got this sheet of paper, Hitler signed, saying there'll never be a war between Britain and Germany again. Wonderful. Peace is for our time. One of the most famous airport scenes in political history, wouldn't you agree? Yes, yes, yes. Now, the play is a two-man play with Hitler and, of course, Chamberlain. How much did you learn about the inner workings of the meetings themselves? We know much more about Chamberlain at the time, perhaps, than we did Hitler. What did you glean from all of your research? Well, uh, there are are some records. The first uh, meeting, which really was the most important, the the minutes were only kept by Hitler's uh, translator, Paul Schmidt was his name, and there was a long-suffering guy. Hmm. And then the later meetings, uh, the two later meetings, and certainly the last meeting, 
you have British versions, German versions, and in both the last meeting, French versions. And they all differ. <laughs> and they all make, hmm. you know, their man the hero of it. So I don't know how reliable they are. To augment them, there are, cap there are minutes of cabinet meetings. And you can look at that and see what Chamberlain was really thinking and what Hitler, uh, you know, said to him. So uh, I've, I used all of those materials as well as looked at memoirs of participants, you know, who were either at Munich or, or you know, mm -hmm. around the Chamberlain government. It is so eerie to see Chamberlain walking up the steps of Hitler's chalet for meetings, and then Mussolini's in the room in one of those meetings. It, it's just weird because you, you know, because of history, that it was a year later that they were blowing each other to smithereens. As far as the meetings, I didn't realize there were that many. I thought there were just one or two. You said there were at least four? Oh, no, three. Three, okay. Yeah. Did they happen over a series of weeks or months? Yes, or over uh, about a month was slightly less than a month of September 1938. What was Winston Churchill's reaction when this was going on? Because we all know he succeeded Chamberlain. Yes. Well, he, as a backbencher, uh, denounced the uh, Munich Agreement. He said, you know, something like, silent, ignored, dismissed, Czechoslovakia recedes into the darkness. We have suffered an unmitigated defeat. Uh, and he... And he said, you know, this year, uh, this is the price of peace. Next year, the, the price will go up. We've got to draw the line. And so he was very prescient and, uh, and, and warning the government that, and, and denouncing the government uh, for its, uh, you know, for, 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 for this. He was in a minority, though, of course. Right. He, uh, he was persona, not persona non grata, certainly persona non grata to Chamberlain, who actually hired detectives to watch out Churchill, who Churchill was meeting with, and so on. He was out of favor with his with the with the Tory Party too. Mm -hmm. Positions he had taken in earlier years, notably around the uh, abdication of the throne by by the king. Uh, Churchill really was on the wrong side of that for a long time, and it made people think he was out of it. Jack, in reading up on Chamberlain, uh, it's kind of impressive to see his list of accomplishments as a political figure in terms of domestic policy, but he'll never be remembered for anything but the Munich event, correct? That's right. In fact, I have, I have him say to Hitler, you know, I'll be remembered for, call it Munich. It, it's nothing in my life stands with it. Hmm. How prophetic. <laughs> yeah, right. Let me just uh, talk with you about a few other things, because you're you're such a, a wonderful analyst, still heard on NPR, and been a writer for years and years. We're living in bizarro land, it seems, when it comes to journalism, when it comes to politics, personality, social media. Are you able to keep up with all this, and what what's the future hold for people who have some common sense? Oh, you mean the, the journalism future? Well, let's start with that, yeah. Where do you see journalism? Yeah, I just think it's such a hard hard row for young people today. I mean, gee, uh, our, our newspaper up here, the Valley News, outstanding uh, paper, and yet it's, you know, I think they just had to, I don't know how many people they had to fire, but it's just terrible mm. what's happened. Um, and then local news suffers most of all. And uh, I just don't know. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, 10 years from now, are there going to be any newspapers? When I get on the T in Boston, it's been a while, I'm usually the oldest person on the bus or 
train and the only one reading a newspaper. Because <laughs> they're all looking at their clickers. Right, they're all looking at their phones. Well, you're not the only old guy reading newspapers. I do, too. Crossword puzzles are a lot more tricky on the phone than they are on the paper. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how people but, do that. But your work with The Atlantic, for instance, beautiful essays that you and your colleagues have written, and there are other magazines like that that seem to be shrinking in size as well. Yes. Uh, everything Terrible. is bite-sized the, now. The Atlantic just, I think, let 50 people go. WBUR, I'm sad to say, just announced today 29 people going. Mm. Very, very hard times for uh, for journalism. And yet it's never been more needed, and I think never been, well, it, the level of excellence is just speaks for itself. I mean, everything we know about the Trump administration that they don't want us to know has come through Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism. And look at the coverage of the of the Black Lives Matter protest and the whole issue of America coming to coming to its moment of decision about you know the stain on its history. I mean, the newspapers just doing stellar work with all that. I think that brings me to one more thing, and I know you're off to get a haircut pretty soon. And I'm mentioning that because it's a big event these days when we get a haircut. Yes, <laughs> I have to ask you to comment because you wrote the Rascal King about James Michael Curley, and I was thinking every time I drive on the Jamaica Way and pass by his old house, yeah, I think of your book and I think of him. It's unlikely that we'll ever see that kind of political figure again, or is it? I mean, we see it sort of in the White House, perhaps, but seriously, I mean, a guy like that who was able to wheel and deal and and cut through a lot of red tape and also uh, get himself in trouble and still stay in office, is that possible, anything like that today? Well, I think you answered the question. (laughs) We'll have to see whether Trump can stay in office. So, yes, the answer is it's happening right now, right before us, Without any of the Curley mitigation, that Curley was smart, that Curley could, as you say, cut through red tape to help people. There's none of that with Trump. He's just interested in helping himself. Well, that's oh, I love the title of your book, The Rascal King. Because yeah. <laughs> it's got that double meaning. And uh, again, I, I can't help but think about it every time I drive by that house. And uh, I grew up in Boston, as you did, and it's uh, very much a part of the uh, history. So on the play, getting back one more time to that, for people who want to see it, I know it's been performed and staged here in the Boston area. Are there any plans to bring it elsewhere? Matter of fact, there are. There are. Uh, Gloucester Stage is uh, filming an online version, and they're going to show it to uh, subscribers, to their subscribers at Gloucester Stage. You just need to call them, and they'll tell you when that is. It's going to be in July. When you do stage it, and I missed it because of, uh, well, issues in, <laughs> in the schedule, does someone uh, look the part, or are they just actors uh, taking Oh, no, they, they look the part. Our Chamberlain is a distinguished Englishman, a uh, mm-hmm. veteran actor, and he has got the, you know, the white pompadour, the, the, uh, the, the, the aquiline profile, and the Hitler guy is perfect as Hitler. He's from an actor from Pittsburgh, Ken Bolden. Oh, I know and, Ken. Uh, I know Ken very well. 
Really? Yeah, I do. He's great. He's done a lot of local work around here. I have to kid him next time I see him that he's playing Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> he's a very gentle fellow. So he's uh, a very sweet fellow, yes. Yeah. I, be- I believe he's one of uh, my tribe, too, as a matter of fact, which is even more ironic. But uh, that's great because it's uh, important to outline history that way and make it interesting. Yeah, and as I say, Gloucester Stage can give you the time and if you wanted to put that in there. Excellent. Jack, I'm going to let you go off and get your hair cut, but it's been a pleasure, and there's a lot of good stuff from Jack Beatty to read online. It's really nice to meet you, sir, and thank you for your time. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it. Jack Beatty, author, news analyst, and playwright. The play, The Battle Not Begun. And as Jack mentioned, the Gloucester Stage Company is making this available July 23rd through the 26th through their website, gloucesterstage.com. This will be a free event, but you must pre-register to reserve your space. Again, visit GloucesterStage.com. Thanks to our wonderful guest and to you for subscribing, downloading, and listening to these podcasts. Also, thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media and Ken Carberry of Chart Productions. This is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.